Good morning. In January of 1990, an old man dressed in his pajamas, sitting on the edge of his bed, was interviewed for a television broadcast in Romania. The man's name was Peter Sutea, a renowned philosopher, and he was asked his thoughts about the recent revolution in Romania. His reply, what revolution? Thinking that perhaps his age and or his declining hearing may have prevented him from understanding the question, the reporter gently rehearsed the events of the previous month in which the Ceausescu regime had been toppled. Sotea replied, that was no revolution. There has only been one revolution in the history of mankind, the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, God coming in the flesh, seeking to save the lost, dining with sinners, exercising demons, controlling the weather, healing the diseased, teaching eternal truths, being put on trial in a kangaroo court, being sentenced to death, nailed to a cross, laid in a tomb, and three days later walking out of that same tomb. These are the high points of the world's greatest revolution. One we read about in various places in Scripture, including Acts chapter 17. Starting in verse 1, it reads, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of, of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. You know, the simple declaration and conviction that Jesus is Lord turned the world upside down. And the revolution continues. To this day, even the atheist and the agnostic cannot pen a letter or write a check without giving reference to Jesus. We still keep track of time based on our Lord's coming, A.D., B.C. This is A.D. 2020, in the year of our Lord, 2020. Everything changed with the incarnation. The revolution was set in motion, but it would be a mere flash in the pan, a brief highlight in history if Jesus' birth were all we had to point to. Of course, we know that's not the truth. For God's fleshly visit to this earth culminated not in death, but in resurrection, the punctuation to the incarnation. It's why you told your parents or your preacher or your friend that you wanted to be baptized. It's the basis for you tuning in this morning. It's the motivation for the mission. It's what prompts you to pick up your Bible and to open it and to underline verses. The simple declaration and conviction that Jesus is Lord has turned your world upside down. 
or has it? I'll tell you what, hold that thought, and let's go to another thought for just a moment, another question really. Do you have any Nehushtans in your life? Do you remember when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness, complaining and murmuring to God? So God sends fiery serpents among the people who, who the serpents bite them and, and cause some of them to die. And Israel quickly tur- does a turnabout and, and confesses their sin. And they plead with Moses to plead with God on their behalf. And Moses does, and God relents. Then God instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. Those who looked at the serpent would be healed immediately. Fast forward 600 years to the reign of King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is a reformist king. He tears down the altars to the pagan gods. He reforms Israel. But in the process, he does the unthinkable. He commands that the bronze serpent be destroyed. Why would he do such a thing? I mean, the bronze serpent was a national treasure. It was made by Moses. Had the king lost his mind? And the answer is no. Hezekiah knew exactly what he was doing because the bronze serpent had become an object of worship for the people. They had grown to worship this object, this Nehushtan as it was called, a thing of brass is what that means. Hezekiah justified his decision to destroy the brazen serpent by reminding the people that it had come between them and God. Do you have any Nehushtans in your life? Have you allowed anything to come between you and God? You know, we were made to mimic. A lot of what we learn in life, we learn by way of imitation. For better or for worse, our character or lack thereof is a product of imitation. If you are a parent that routinely blows up at your kids and has a short fuse, you shouldn't be surprised if your kids are constantly blowing up and have a short fuse. If you're a coach that's constantly yelling at your kids and yelling at the referee, well, then don't be surprised when your players yell at each other and at the referees. Who do you want to be? What do you want to become? Because even as an adult, you mimic. You mimic what you revere, which leads to you actually becoming what you imitate. As, as uh, Greg Beal put it, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. The psalmist expressed this very well in Psalm 115. There it reads, starting in verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. It's that last verse I want you to really pay attention to. It says, those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. We become like the one we mimic. What you worship, you will resemble. Our idols are pathetic, impotent, and utterly unworthy of our dedication. And yet, they, they all have sort of a, a hidden power. A hidden power to steal our identity. An idol has no life and no purpose, but they still have tremendous power to control us. You see, idolatry is not just a pagan issue. It's not solely an Old Testament issue. It's not even just a Jewish issue. It's a human issue. It's a heart issue. What our heart beats for, what we bow down to, what you put your faith and trust in will eventually make you. 
It's like the woman who said, you know, my God doesn't believe in hell. And the preacher responded, yeah, your God doesn't. Idolatry isn't just about bowing down to a statue or worshiping a stump. As A.W. Tozer put it, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. It's simply a wrong concept of God. It's bad theology. It's worshiping an image of God that doesn't match Scripture. Many people have fashioned this idea of God that is nothing more than a collection of their own philosophies. So it's not enough to believe in and worship God. You must believe in and worship worship the right concept of God. So why do I bring all this up? You may be thinking to yourself, well, I thought this was a sermon about Jesus being Lord. And, you know, as you probably have figured out, Jesus as Lord and idolatry, those two subjects kind of go hand in hand. Calling Jesus Lord in the first century was costly. Do you know why? Well, because the world the first century Christians were living in had a Lord. And it certainly wasn't a man by the name of Jesus. No, it was a man that they called Caesar. Caesar wasn't just the title of one who ruled the Roman Empire. No, he was more than an emperor. He was a god and demanded to be worshipped as such. You know, so in order to be a good little Roman citizen, the word Caesar is Lord. Those words had to constantly be on your lips. And as you can imagine, this put Christians in quite a predicament. For a Christian... To say Jesus is a Lord or a God would not have brought them any reproach whatsoever. To add Jesus to the Parthenon of many gods would have been just fine. But to make the claim that Jesus is the Lord, well, that was something that was going to bring about the death sentence more than likely. To say Jesus is Lord, the Lord, was something different altogether. So for a Christian living in Rome... It was either idolatry, which leads to death, or discipleship, which leads to death. Be comfortable now and uncomfortable in eternity, or be uncomfortable now and comfortable in eternity. And in some ways, we kind of face the same decision. We, too, choose whether we will bow down to the Caesars in our life or to the one true God. And while the stakes may not be as, as high in the here and now, or at least it may not seem like it, the eternal consequences are absolutely the same. As I stated a moment ago, we become like that which we give our allegiance to. If we give our allegiance to something that is worthless and useless and and empty and fleeting, then we're going to become useless and worthless and, and empty and fleeting. And that's the surprising claim by the psalmist in Psalm 115. Remember it again. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. It's not just our idols that are empty or powerless. It's the people who worship them that become empty and powerless as well. James Boyce stated it this way. He said, if we worship things that people produce, we will become as impotent and empty as those things. But if we worship God by the grace of God, we will become like God and we will both glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if we worship what is significant, we become significant. If we worship what is satisfying, we become satisfied. My uncle passed away in 2013. He was a man who had a lot of promise. Graduating top of his class, perfect score on the ACT, went off to the University of Arkansas, got into uh, some bad stuff, got mixed in with a, a crowd he shouldn't have been involved in. He became immersed in a drug culture, culminating in him being on the run from the police. 
so much promise and such a waste. In fact, some in our family would have probably referred to him as a, as a deadbeat, and that probably would have been an accurate description. He turned his life around, eventually you know, working for 3M in, in Minnesota and, and, and made a good life for himself. But for so much of his life, he worshipped an idol. An idol of drugs that, that took its toll on him. His death was a result of many years of drug use where he contracted hepatitis and he died waiting on a liver transplant. Unfortunately, he never could shake those idols. Even after he moved past that, it followed him for the rest of his life. You will become what you revere. You will resemble what you worship. So what do you want to become? And the answer to that question starts with identifying the Caesars in your life. What are you bowing down to? Because it is our very nature to worship. We were created that way. And you've heard me say it before. Everyone worships something. Everyone worships something, either the big G God or the little G gods. But somebody, anybody, everybody is worshiping something or someone. And there is no choice but to choose. In the book of Joshua, chapter 24, a very familiar passage, starting in verse 14, Joshua, the leader and commander, says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua tells the people that they have a choice to make. Everyone's going to worship something. So either worship the big G God or little G gods. But you have a choice. You better choose wisely. And don't you find it interesting that Joshua gives three options along with the one true God? You know, I've never given an invitation at the end of one of my sermons that was multiple choice. But that's basically what Joshua says. Here's here's the options, door one, two, three, or four, right? Choose wisely. Because Joshua, even though he was a leader and a commander, understood that this couldn't be forced. You can't force worship of the big G God. It's got to be chosen. If it's going to mean anything, it's got to be chosen from the heart. So Joshua lays it out for the people. They can follow the God which their fathers served beyond the river. They can follow the gods of Egypt where they used to live. Or they can follow the gods of the people they recently defeated. Or the one true God, the big G God. The people needed to understand that the choice was theirs, but that choice would make them. By the way, do you know what the name Joshua means? It means Jehovah saves. It is from the Hebrew, Yeshua, meaning Yahweh is my salvation. As you know, Joshua led Israel out of the wilderness and into the promised land. This whole series that we've been doing this year is connecting Jesus the Messiah to the Old Testament and to the shadows that pointed to him, and certainly we see that here. Jesus is the second Joshua. Do you know what the name Jesus means? It's the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua, and again, the meaning refers to rescue or deliver. The Joshua that led Israel out of the wilderness and into the promised land is an archetype or a shadow of the deliverer who would be more than a prophet or more than an emissary from God. The second Joshua would be God himself who came to rescue mankind out of slavery and death. He is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. All things 
come into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him is the life, and life was the light of men. He is not the instrument of salvation like Joshua. He is salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the alpha and the omega, the last amen. Listen to the words of Paul in Philippians 2. He writes, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you might assume that this is the point in the sermon where I ask, is Jesus Lord of your life? But I'm not going to do that this morning. And the reason I'm not going to do that is because that would be the wrong question. Because Jesus is Lord of your life, whether you recognize it or not. He is Lord of all. Paul says it right here. He is already Lord of your life. He is Lord of everything and everyone's life. He is Lord, period, exclamation point. Paul stated it in no uncertain terms within the verses we just read. He is Lord of all, and there's no question about that. You can't make Jesus Lord of your life. He already is because he is Lord of everything. What you must do, though, is choose whether you will bow before him or refuse to do so. But your unbelief, your turning away from him, doesn't change anything about the lordship of Jesus Christ. You will not unseat him no matter what your, your decision might be. So the call is not to make Jesus Lord of your life. The call is to surrender to him as Lord. The call is to refuse to bow to all the Caesars in your life and to bow to the one true Lord. For some of you, the call may be to repent for some, the call may be to confess Jesus and to be baptized for the remission of your sins. For all of us, the call is to bow before him and acknowledge that he is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you live in joyful obedience to his kingship? Do you trust that his ways are good and right one day, both the obedient and the disobedient are going to bow before him. And no one, I mean no one, will be able to stand. So wouldn't you rather bow in humble adoration today than bow on the day of judgment when it's too late to change your mind? Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verse 46. There it reads, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You all know by now that I don't like to pluck one verse out of context and make it stand by itself. So let's kind of look at real quickly what's going on around this verse. Jesus had spent the night in prayer. Then he chose the apostles. He then healed many diseased people and many people who were demon-possessed. He preached a sermon where he pronounced blessings on his disciples and contrasted their blessedness with woes for those who seek the approval of men rather than of God. Then he went from preaching to meddling as he discussed the type of love that should mark a follower and warned against having a judgmental attitude. He cautioned those who followed him about how their lives must match their profession. And after all this, Jesus asked an unanswerable question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In other words, there is no excuse for calling Jesus Lord and not surrendering to his lordship. Jesus is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. It's that simple. So, do you love your enemies? Do you do good to those who hate you? Do you bless those who curse you? 
Do you pray for those who mistreat you? Are you merciful? Do you fit the description of a disciple? Do you hear and act on the words of Jesus? Are you like the wise man who built his house on a strong and sturdy foundation? Who really is Lord of your life? And don't say Jesus if you're continually bowing down to little g gods in your life. All too often Christians declare Jesus is Lord, but their lives express something quite different. Augustine used to say, love God and do whatever you want. That's terrible advice. And that's diametrically opposed to what it means to be a disciple. Surrendering to the lordship of Jesus Christ means that I do what Jesus would have me to do, not whatever I want to do. Surrendering to the lordship of Jesus Christ means that I love him. And because I love him, I obey his commands, as he stated in John 14, 15. Doing whatever we want is actually doing whatever he wants. We bring our lives before him and we say, here, take it. You can have every single bit of it. There's not a speck of it that I'm going to hold on to. I bow completely and totally before you. You know what lordship looks like? It looks like what Paul stated in Galatians 2.20. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus Christ started a revolution in Paul's life on the road to Damascus. That encounter not only changed Paul's name, but it changed his entire being. Because that's what surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ does. You're never the same. You've been crucified So it's no longer about you, it's all about Jesus. Do you remember the song, Hokey Pokey? I'm sure you do. You you put your right arm in, you put your right arm out, you put your right arm in, you shake it all about, you do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. Then you progress to the other arm, then you know your, your head and your legs and all that. And, and finally, the whole thing ends with you putting your whole self in and your whole self out. You put your whole self in and you shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. It's almost a church hymn, isn't it? Pretty close. Because it's, it's sort of a theological experience. Because as disciples, we have to put our whole selves in. That's what it's all about. Unfortunately, some only put some of themselves in some of the time. Some feel that half is enough. Some feel that some is better than nothing. Or they put themselves in and out depending on what situation they find themselves in. But folks, I cannot stress this enough. Jesus Jesus is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. This is an all or nothing proposition. There is no such thing as partial discipleship. You're all in or you're all out. That's what it's all about. I want all of us here at the Oldham Lane Church of Christ to put our whole selves in. Can you imagine what this church could be and what we could do if we put our whole selves in, if we surrendered every single part of us to Jesus Christ? Can you imagine what we could accomplish? No more Caesars, no more Nehushtans, no more little g-gods. From this day forward, we choose to bow down to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to Him alone. And do you know what will happen if we do that? You know what the result will be? It'll be a revolution. Let's start a revolution today.